Welcome to episode 256 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Beverly Weintraub. Do you know the story of the first six female pilots in the Navy? This year, 2023, the Navy is celebrating 50 years of women being in aviation in the Navy. It's exciting to get a chance to read the stories of women who took a chance to serve as the first women pilots in the Navy. Beverly wrote Wings of Gold, which she shares the stories of the first women and follows their journey of not only serving, but advocating for women to make changes for women pilots of future generations. If you enjoy learning the history of military women, I really think you'll enjoy this episode, and I also recommend you go out and get your copy of Wings of Gold today. Before we get started, I want to remind you that you can listen to Women of the Military podcast on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now, with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview with the author of Wings of Gold. Welcome, everyone, to Women of the Military podcast. I'm really excited to do this special episode about women in history, military women in history. I love getting to learn more about military women in history. I also, I think I get a little frustrated because reading some of the stories, I'm like, why? Why do they do these things? And it also helps me understand why women still face challenges today. So Beverly wrote Wings of Gold. I have my copy right here. It's about the first six women who were pilots in the Navy. And as my background is Air Force, I haven't learned a lot about the Navy. And so I was really fun to read her book and to read all the history. So thanks so much for not only being on the podcast, but for sharing the stories of women veterans. Well, thanks so much for having me. And it's really been been a privilege to be able to dive into these amazing stories and to uh, to bring back this history that was lost. So can you tell me a little bit about how this project came to be and why you decided to write these stories? Sure. So this story actually found me and the whole book kind of happened backwards, which is a little bit weird. Um, so in 2019, when um, Captain Rosemary Mariner passed away of cancer, and she was one of these six women brought into Navy flight training in 1973 as an experiment, like, let's just put women officially in military flight training, and let's just see what happens. And she became, she was the most prominent of the six. She was the first woman to fly a fighter jet. She was the first woman to command an aviation squadron and an inspiring leader um, in promoting women and men um, to be the best they could be in the military. And when she passed away in 2019, the Navy did its first all women missing man flyover at a funeral. And this had gotten a lot of attention. Now, I spent 24 years um, as a journalist at the New York Daily News. Um, I had written about aviation, among other things. I'm also a pilot. So one of my former colleagues who knows these things about me works in the opinion section of the Washington Post. And when something would happen about women in airplanes, I get an email from her. Hey, would you write something? So when this flyover happened, I got an email asking if I'd write a piece for the Washington Post about the flyover and putting it in historical context and what this meant. So I did that. And a couple of months later, I got an email from Lions Press saying, hey, we saw the column. We think it might make for an interesting book. What do you think? 
So it just kind of came out of nowhere. And it's been so gratifying that, you know, this whole women military aviator community got totally on board and they've sort of adopted me, which has been really, really fun. And they've really taken the book to heart. And if you can see my shirt says 50 years of women in naval aviation, this is the 50th anniversary this year. And the Navy has been putting on events and really celebrating this all year. And there was an event I could talk about a little later. One of the flyover pilots, Lieutenant Amanda Lee, this year made her debut as the first woman demonstration pilot for the Blue Angels. So there's never been a woman flying the jets for the Blue Angels before. She's the first one. And about 50 of us went out to California for her debut. And a number of these, you know, these incredible, you know, military aviation pioneers, these women, they were carrying around copies of my book and passing it around for people to sign like a yearbook, which was so gratifying and such a relief because, you know, if I had gotten the story wrong, they would have told me in a second. Yeah, they would have. They would have been like, you did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Yeah, I really liked how you included the history, not only about the women, but also about a lot of like the men, especially like Admiral Zimwalt, who did the directives and was like the big push. And I think that adds a lot of interesting context because you also wrote about, you know, men and women who are very opposed to women being pilots and especially being fighter pilots, but even pilots in general. And so it was really cool to hear like the Z-grams. I loved learning about all the different Z-grams and how he was advocating for women back at a time where I didn't really realize, you know, who was pushing for women to be pilots. I didn't know that came from inside the military. And so that was really interesting. Right. It was really, I mean, sort of a desperation move. And I'm sure that at heart, he believed, you know, in equality for the largest pool of people. But, you know, really the Navy needed people. You know, it wasn't just in aviation. They were looking down, you know, with all the turmoil of the Vietnam War and, all these social changes in civilian society and the Navy was not having any of it. And enlistment was way down and morale was terrible. And they were looking at having to attract volunteers because the draft was ending. So they had all these factors working against them. Plus in terms of women, they thought that the Equal Rights Amendment was going to pass. And there were all these restrictions on what women were allowed to do. A woman couldn't be a commanding officer over men. A woman could not set foot on a ship. A woman could not set foot on aircraft. And they were looking at this and expecting that soon all these restrictions would be unconstitutional. They needed to get out ahead of it. So that was part of why, you know, in Zumwalt's push to modernize the Navy, you know, that women needed there needed to be a special Z-gram addressing these limitations on women and explaining why they needed to go. And the flight training program grew out of that. And you talked about the Air Force. I mean, the other branches were like half a step behind the Navy. They were also pretty much seeing the same reality and getting, you know, gearing up to expand these opportunities. Um, Admiral Zumwalt just happened to get there first. Yeah. Well, and I know it's near the end of the book, but I really like to quote that you put, um, from Rosemary talking about we're not doing because it was when they're advocating for women to get into fighter jets. And she's like, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for the women who follow me. And as a woman veteran, like reading that quote, and I just heard a 98 year old woman veteran, she said the exact same thing. Like, I'm so proud of you guys because we pushed and advocated. And so I think that's 
like one of my favorite parts of the book is that quote where she talks about how she's advocating for the next generation. And that's a theme I've seen in the podcast is like women are doing these amazing things and they're breaking down barriers. And there's a lot of like friction and challenge against them, but they're doing it anyways. And then we're those changes aren't just affecting our lives, but they're, or maybe they're not even affecting our lives directly, but they're affecting the next generation. And it's, it's really a cool theme. And I, I really loved how you captured that part in the book. I mean, it's also sort of carries forward for the current generation and for young women who are coming up because, you know, you read the chat boards and you see what's going on in social media. And unfortunately, you know, some of the same stuff that, you know, the women back in the 70s were facing and then the women in the 90s, that stuff is still coming up. And it really, I think, is somewhat reassuring to know that they're not the only ones who have gone through this stuff, even though they shouldn't have to deal with it. Other women have found ways around it. They've found ways to overcome it. People have survived it and gotten through it and come out stronger. And, you know, here are some role models for you. And, you know, some of them are still very much engaged. You know, I, you know, I wrote about the Navy, so that's what I'm most familiar with. Some of them are still engaged with the Navy um, hierarchy, trying to figure out how best to support, you know, their young, their younger women. Yeah, because we care so much about what their military experience is like, and we want it to be better than what we experienced. And so that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about the six women and how you chose to like tell their story, because I thought you did such a good job of telling their story with six. I mean, with six women pilots, you could easily get lost in all the details. And as the reader, I could have been like, who, what? Once I read a book and it was about... Um, I'm an amazing woman, but there were all these like side characters. And as an audiobook, when I was listening, I was like, I don't know who it is. I'm so confused on the storyline, but you did a good job of like weaving in new characters as, you know, they experience different things. So how did you go about writing the book? Um, So I was fortunate and this project actually came up like four months before COVID hit. So this became my pandemic project. Um, so I had all the time I needed to write. However, doing the research was a little bit difficult. I had tickets to Pensacola. I was going to the Naval Aviation Museum. I was going to the National Archives and none of that was happening because nobody was going anywhere. Um, but I was really fortunate in that so much had been written about these women at the start of the project. And with each milestone, there was huge press interest. And, you know, the Navy drummed that up a lot. You know, they may not have liked the idea of women pilots, but it was really good publicity. So they really really built it. So that was great for me as a researcher that the contours of the story were all there, you know, who was where, when, and how they overlapped and what their unique experiences were. And, you know, I was able to to get in touch with the women and their families um, through a couple of listservs. And some of them um, had kept every last piece of paper, every piece of memorabilia, everything. And they were like, come to my house and see my archive, which was amazing. And it was then just a question of, you know, and this is a standard journalistic practice. If you're doing any kind of an investigative piece, you're building timelines. And then you're seeing what was happening outside the external forces that were acting on what they did and the changes they got made. And then just kind of seeing how the interplay was and then having, you know, defined, you know, who are the six, who are the six people and what did they do? You know, it would be different writing a biography, but writing a history, who had the stories that best illustrated the various themes 
um, of what was going on in terms of society and what was going on in terms of the Navy and in terms of family and in terms of women's opportunity and promotions or lack thereof and how they how they pushed back, how they enlisted help, how they found help from places they never might have expected it would come. And then the changes they made and how those and how those resonated. So yeah. it was, you know, a, you know, able to sort of sort of pick and choose, you know, who has the best stories that had, you know, the most impact and giving everybody equal time because, you know, they had six, six women who were never in the same place at the same time. If two of them or three of them were in the same place at the same time, that was unusual. They were on their own. And, you know, how each of them had to fight through that and the lack of expectation and the lack of basic facilities. You know, you don't have a ladies room. Jane O'Day was stations in Spain and her skipper said, well, we don't have a lady. We has one bathroom. You can't use it because there was no ladies room. And, you know, this became, you know, this was a perpetual issue that was, you know, going on through the decades. Well, it's impossible to put women on ships because there are no bathrooms for them. How she overcame that. You know, how um, Rosemary Mariner's first skipper, you know, put her in for jet transition training, even though women weren't allowed to fly jets at the time, and how they were all begging to be allowed to carry or qualify. And they were like, no, women can't do that. And not only did they not let women do that, they started taking it away from the men as well, which really um, did not endear them. Yeah. to the women. Um, Joellen Oslin, who was the first uh, helicopter pilot, who discovered that at her first billet, she wasn't allowed to land on a ship with the rest of her squadron. And that's the primary job, right? Carrying mail and supplies from shore to the ship. And no, no women aren't allowed on ships. You're not allowed to go on a ship. And she ended up joining a class action lawsuit challenging these restrictions. So it was how these women individually pushed back you know, through working through the system and sometimes, you know, working outside the system and and weaving those stories together. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it was like one step forward, two steps back with different things where I remember the Navy, like they, the lawsuit passed and was it the lawsuit or Congress changed something? And then the Navy was like, well, all these ships are now combat ships. So women can't be on them. And so it was like something that should have been really good for women in the end, hurt them more than it helped them. I mean, in some ways, it some ways it helped, but it also like limited in, them in ways just because the Navy was like, we're going to make this so this works better for us. Right. It was, you know, we're going to change the language so it sounds good, but now we're going to put in some restrictions. So, yeah, you could go on a combat combat ship, which was if it had a combat mission, so it maybe it would be used in combat at some point, not that it was being used in combat then. You could be deployed there for six months. But, you know, most seaborne billets were much longer than six months. So, you know, if something happens in these six months, they're going to pull these women off the ship. You know, it, it seemed like, you know, it was kind of like a half a step forward. Yeah. And there was, you're right, there was an awful lot of that, you know, one step you know, forward and two steps back. And overcoming like the challenges. I think the the part about, you know, 1993 was when the law was finally changed that women could be in fighter jets and combat aircraft. But to I read your book and then I read Fly Girls Revolt um, before your book. And so reading mm-hmm. both, you know, Fly Girls Revolt and your story and like different pieces of information I think what was hardest for me to read was the women who were like advocating against women and the challenge. The biggest proponents for women not to be in fighter jets were women. 
And I mean, yeah. there were men too, but the women were very vocal and like on this thing. And it was as someone who served in the military and deployed overseas, I felt insulted because I joined the military to serve my country and everything that, and I am a mom and a wife and I'm doing all those things now, but you can do both of those things. And just because it's not right for you doesn't mean it's not right for everyone. Just like not all men are in the military, not all women are in the military. And so it was really hard to read that part of the book and not get so frustrated. (laughs) So what was your experience writing that and learning that history? I was, I understood some of it. I was surprised how widespread that resistance is. And I was surprised how deep it went and how high up it went. Um, So, you know, there were, you know, some political actors, some women, you know, who were dead set against women being in the military at all. And if you watch the video of the Senate hearing where this was all hashed out, where you had um, Merrill McPeak, who was the the head of the Air Force, getting up and saying that he'd rather have a less qualified male pilot than a more qualified woman. And then he says, and I know it doesn't make sense, but that's just how I feel. And then they accuse women of making emotional decisions. It's ridiculous. But I mean, the whole thing is posted on the C-SPAN website. I mean, you can watch all like four hours of it. And the talking points that these senators were following were written exactly by those, you know, those women, those, you know, right wing political actors who did not believe women should be in the military. And you can just kind of see them chipping away at, well, yes, we're talking about women pilots, but now let's talk about women in foxholes and forcing women to carry a rifle into combat. Like, that's not the issue. But, you know, that kind of, you know, muddying of the waters, um, you know, driven driven by women. Yeah, it's extremely frustrating. And yeah. that the men And that the men would just buy it. Yeah, especially because, I mean... Well, I mean, combat exclusion wasn't lifted till 2015 for women on the ground, but I deployed in 2010 and I was attached to an infantry unit that I couldn't serve in. And when they announced that they were going to lift combat exclusion, I was like, and they were like, and we're going to do a study. And I was like, why do they need a study? Women are already doing it. But the more I learn about like what happened, you know, Desert Storm was the real big push for women to get in combat roles because of the role they played during Desert Storm and the fact that the military wouldn't have been able to meet their mission without the women pilots who are there and, you know, sometimes crossing into combat zones. And then the same thing happened in history again with women in on, on the ground when we've been at war for, you know, 15 years and those women, women had been in combat. They had crossed into the, like, combat and or being attached to units they couldn't serve in and so it was really interesting to hear about another study another study it's like we're already doing it why don't you just take the data from the real world instead of doing a study to make it say what you want it to say right because there were studies in the 80s and there were studies in the 90s and none of the results are terribly different it's the same thing but you know it's a great it's a great stalling tactic. You sound like you're doing something and you're not. I mean, the whole point about Desert Storm was that, and Rosemary Mariner said that war opens up opportunities because you see things in your living room on TV that you didn't know happened. And in Desert Storm, there were women in combat situations anyway. They were in harm's way. They were being shot at. They were being bombed, but they were not in combat technically. But it was it's a distinction without a difference. You know, when the reality is, well, do you want women not to be able to defend themselves? 
because they're, they're in harm's way either way. Yeah, the support role doesn't, you know, prevent you from being in, you know, a dangerous situation, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, where like the bases were bombed. And I mean, that happened in Kuwait, too. People were getting I wrote a story about two women who were killed on base when a bombing happened during uh, Desert Storm because you can't be like, no, nope, there's a woman here. It's The bomb can't land here. That's not how it works in a war zone. And so, yeah. But I thought that was really interesting. And it's really hard to read, but it also helps me understand the military as a whole and how to be a better advocate for women because I realize like where the bias is coming from and that it's we've made a lot of progress and it's really awesome to see how much has changed. But there's still people who feel the way that some of these people who are trying to fight against combat exclusion, women being pilots, they're still around and there's still something we have to deal with. So we need to keep advocating so we can make the military better. Yeah, absolutely. So were there any favorite stories from your time of doing research that you can share with us? I mean, Jane, o, Jane O'Day's whole pushback, you know, in being the first military pilot mom, um, you know, first they told her she couldn't use the bathroom. And then they said, oh, my God, you're pregnant. You're going to quit. Right. And she was like, nope, not quitting. Um, she had two daughters. The first one she was on duty. She was the first woman and the only woman flying the C-130 Hercules because Air Force women weren't flying at the time. So her crewmates thought it was great. Her skipper wanted her out, but she did not. She did not leave. I think she flew until her seventh month, and then went on desk duty, and then got a promotion, and then and then went back when she was pregnant the second time. She was um, a flight instructor at Pensacola, and I think she said she quit in her six months because she couldn't reach all the buttons and switches anymore in the in the T thirty four, and she logged like a hundred hours of flight time. The baby logged like a hundred hours of flight time. So just her whole trajectory, how she had to make something that looked like a uniform because there were no maternity uniforms, of course, and. You know, that was that was technically allowed, but she had to create something because there was nothing that would fit her. And it kind of resonated with me that until last year, there were no maternity flight suits Yeah, last year. And, you know, women would just have to buy bigger and bigger flight suits. So you have loose fabric in the cockpit. So this could, you know, loose fabric catches on the controls. That's really unsafe. And this took until 2022 to figure out that this was something that was needed. So, you know, that story definitely resonated. Um, how, you know, how um, Rosemary Mariner's um, first skipper, Raymond Lambert, you know, needed jet pilots. So, you know, he just sent all the names in, including hers, and her orders kept getting lost. And um, and somebody up the chain of command who ended up um, being a rear admiral, Chuck McGrail, just thought that, you know, these restrictions were ridiculous. You want the best pilots you can find. And if he says she's the best pilot, well, put her in transition training. Um, so, you know, help from an unexpected source. The really tragic story, um, Joellen Osland, who was very, very open about having been sexually assaulted by her, her crewmates when, when, she, when she was in the reserves. And, you know, the guys were brought up on charges and got a slap on the wrist. And this was, you know, a couple of years before Tailhook. And, you know, she's convinced that had they received punishment commensurate with the offense, Tailhook might not have happened because it was just giving, you know, guys carte blanche. Yep, sexually assaulting, you know, 
you know, your your fellow officers who happen to be women, you know what, that is really okay because, you know, they got away with it. And, you know, she's convinced that that really, really set the tone for what happened, you know, during that convention in Las Vegas. And that was, you know, that was really, really hard, hard to read, hard to write. Yeah. And the stories, I mean, you also highlighted the women who lost their lives, you know, as pilots are that brought up memories of the stories that I read about, you know, the different women who, you know, try new things and, you know, accidents happen. And then like the backlash of like, if a woman loses her life in a, you know, training accident, it's obviously her fault, not that there was a pilot error or that it was a pilot error and not that there was, you know, something wrong with the aircraft. And somehow those stories that should have been, you know, tragic and respected for the loss turned into a point where people were trying to use it to advocate. This is why women shouldn't be in different aircraft. Right. And they they were talking about Kara Holtry specifically and yeah, the, um, the furor that erupted over, you know, her, her death, which, you know, she was what the ninth F-14 pilot who was killed in a similar, in a similar accident. Hers were the only training records who were leaked to the press. And she was the only one who was smeared, you know, blamed for, blamed for this accident. And, you know, the fact that men received informal mentorship that women did not get. And when a woman went to seek it, well, that was proof that she just wasn't a good pilot because she needed extra help. But had she not gotten that extra support, which the men just, you know, received as a matter of course, you know, her career would have suffered that way. So there was, there, it was a lose-lose situation. But still women persevered. But still, still women persevered. Absolutely. I think that's the, like the coolest theme is to hear like how they overcame the challenges that they faced and how they didn't give up i mean some of them i liked one of the stories i'm like remembering all the stories of like one of the women resigned and her paperwork got lost and instead she got promoted (laughs) she was like wait that's not what was supposed to happen so there's so many good stories in the book and um i don't and there's so much more that we didn't cover but that's what you're supposed to do in a book interview. You, know, you can't take away, tell all the stories because there's so much more to read. But what else from the book writing process do you want my listeners to know? I mean, it can be challenging. It, You know, you can kind of question what you're doing. If you have a good idea, if you think there's a good story, keep at it because there's so many fascinating stories out there that have been been lost to time that need to be told you know sort of like this one and you know everybody has a unique perspective you're bringing your own expertise you're bringing your own experience that can inform how you tell the story and just start writing I mean I used to kind of joke well if you're stuck on the first paragraph just start with the second paragraph (laughs) um but you know you're telling a story if it's not coming out in words, you know, you have, everybody has a, a voice recorder on your phone. Tell it to your phone. Just speak the story. Just get it out there. Yeah, I think that's been one of the greatest things about the podcast is that, you know, a guided interview can help you to get those words out of your mind and out there so that people can hear your story. Because, you know, it's funny how a question of why did you decide to join the military can just, you know, open up the opportunity to have a conversation about your service. And so I think that's a great idea. And I like the write the second paragraph because I'm in the process of working on my memoir and I 
get stuck in different places and I like the idea of like if that part's not coming together just go past it and then you can come back later because um it is really challenging to write about you know some of the things that I experienced in the military but still very important to write about yeah and the other thing is like there are mentors out there there are communities out there I had no idea there was this huge community of women pilot writers which is just led by this absolute dynamo named Liz Booker. She was a um, a Coast Guard officer. And she is just fabulous in terms of promoting women writers. And there is a readers group for people who are trying to write and people who are writing. There's a huge amount of support out there. And, you know, everybody's got an interesting story to tell. You may not think it's interesting, but it is. Because you know something that, other people don't. Yeah, I just did an interview recently with someone who said, I only served in the military for a year and a half. And I was like, that's fine. I'm not gonna you served your time. And, you know, we're and I was like, that just makes for an interesting story, because I need to know what happened to led you to get out of the military so quickly. And it was a great interview. And so I think you're right, everyone has a story to tell. It's unique. It's different and you know personal to you and so and there's so much value in sharing those stories so and I always like to end this interview with advice for women who are considering joining the military I know you didn't serve but I feel like you got adopted into the military community Mm -hmm. so I'd love to hear your thoughts about women joining the military I mean it seems to me you know not having experienced it personally that it is a place to test yourself and to achieve and to have to overcome some obstacle and actually get to where you think you want to go. I mean, that that's hugely empowering. And, you know, kind of like writing, you know, if it doesn't quite work out the way you think it's going to, there's probably another avenue. There's another way to chat, to challenge yourself. There's another way to pursue it. And, you know, there's a whole network of people who are there who can, who can assist you. I mean, nobody does anything alone. You know, some people might say you do, but no, there's always somebody who laid the path, who laid the groundwork, who can offer advice, a roadmap, suggestions, you know, reach reach out to reach out to people because there are people who have been there and they know what it takes to get through and they're there to help. Yeah, Uh, that's such great advice. I mean, so many people I've interviewed have talked about different people who have you know, open the door for them or help them in their transition or joining the military. And I think that's so true. We No one does anything alone. We all have people, you know, behind the scenes or, you know, out there in front of us who are leading the way. And so reach out to those people, get advice, get connected. Such great advice. Thank you so much for writing Wings of Gold and sharing the stories of the first six women to be pilots in the Navy. I really enjoyed getting to learn more about these women and hearing more history of military women. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This was really fun. So good talking to you.